Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. In our last episode, we began an exploration of the efforts underway to close the A to J gap through a conversation with Equal Justice Works' David Stern. We continue that exploration with today's episode and our conversation with John Mayer, the executive director of the Center for Computer-Assisted Legal Instruction at Chicago Kent, the law school of the Illinois Institute of Technology. One of Cali's key projects is A to J Author, a software tool that enables non-technical stakeholders from the courts, legal services programs, and law schools to rapidly build and implement user-friendly interfaces for document assembly. A to J guided interviews remove many of the barriers faced by self-represented litigants, allowing them to easily complete court documents. It is a testament to how a law, design, and technology process working together and close the access to justice gap. Listen in to today's conversation with John to learn why an engineer by education and self-described systems thinker chose to stay law adjacent rather than embarking on the CIO path. How his participation in a joint project of Kent Law School and the Institute of Design at IIT on self-represented litigants laid the groundwork for A to J author. And why John believes automating court forms is one of the best ways for law students to learn the law. I really enjoyed talking to John and was inspired by his story. I hope you feel the same way. Thanks for listening. Hi, John. How are you? I'm great. Good. Thanks so much for joining us today. Joined by John Mayer, who's uh, with the Center for Computer-Assisted Legal Instruction, which we'll refer to as Cali from this point forward. John, let, let's start a little bit about your background. You got your undergraduate degree and your master's degree in computer science, and yet you've been at Cali since 1994, 1995, something like That's that? That's right, 1994. What was it that intrigued you about the use of technology in the legal profession that caused you to take your training as a computer scientist in this direction? Well, it wasn't one of those things that just happened quickly. I took the position of computer lab manager at Chicago Kent College of Law in 1987, was promoted up into, you know, essentially director of IT at a law school and did that for a few years until the Cali position opened and moved over to Cali. But the reason why I took a job at a law school as a tech person was because they were offering a free tuition so I could get my master's degree <laughs> at the larger university. And I, I didn't start there thinking, oh, boy, I'm going to have a career in legal education. I thought this was a stepping stone to continue my IT career someplace else. Although I admit at the time, I didn't know where that was going to be. It was only working at a law school and working, and I'll foreshadow a little bit, the bigger idea of working in the justice space that I said, you know, there's interesting work to be done. They were, compared to the rest of the world, law and legal education was way behind the curve on their use of technology. And I had a marvelous mentor. My boss was uh, Ron Stout, who's uh, now retired. He would constantly come up with interesting and cool ideas for the law school and for our IT department to implement. I often joke with him that, you know, yeah, yeah, you got great ideas, but uh, somebody's got to get the work done, and that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing it to execution is always the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So so he was the idea guy, but I was the, the one that made things, you know, installed the network, designed the tech in the brand new building, 
That was the other thing. There was a precipitating moment that in 1990-91, the law school decided to build a brand new law school, a whole new building. Traditionally in education, or at least over the last 20 or 30 years, whenever a school builds a new building, there's always going to be a technology component to that. There was like eight or nine or 10 different committees around designing the classroom, designing the courtroom, designing the infrastructure. And as the IT guy at the law school, I found myself on every single committee because there was a technology component for every single thing that was going into this brand new building. It became the thing that they most publicized when they opened the building in 91. It was the most technologically advanced law school you know, ever built. We dropped 2,000 Ethernet connections in that building. Every seat in every classroom, every study carol in the library had a little port for plugging a computer into it. That's sort of amazing, given the time you were doing it. Yeah. Well, Ethernet on Twisted Pair, to get a little nerdy here, had just been approved as a standard. If we were trying to do it on Ethernet over coaxial cable, it would have been a holy nightmare. But on Twisted Pair, it was doable. And we even took it a step further. We pulled fiber. We were using fiber optic throughout the backbone of the building because we were anticipating that we wanted to move a lot of video around. And in 91, the idea that there would be a lot of video flying around was a radical idea. How ironic that here we are talking you know, over the internet using video, video, using Wi-Fi and such. But at the time, it was not at all considered a, a done deal. So we decided, though, to put in a lot of connections because we thought that there were all sorts of things we could build on top of a ubiquitous network within the building. Because in 91, it was pre-internet. <laughs> yes, it was. I was there at the time. I, that's That's pre-internet. It's so interesting that the school was thinking about those things at that time because Chicago Kent sort of stayed in the forefront of technology and the legal profession. It sort of built on that, hasn't it? They've tried, and I believe they've succeeded in a lot of ways. The impetus should be somewhat obvious. It was one of the only, if not the only, law school in the country whose parent institution was a technical university, you know, a STEM university. There is no law school at MIT. There is a law school at U of I. But you know what I mean? It was the Illinois Institute of Technology. And oh, by the way, we have this law school now affiliated with us. So it made sense to try to find synergies, at least in mission, between the university and the law school. And that's, that's where Ron's great work came into play. Yeah, that makes sense. So you stayed at the school for seven years, and then you move over to Cali. First off, tell us what, I, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with Cali's work, but for those that aren't, tell us about Cali and its mission and what it does. Well, well first of all, let me, let me back up on that. I'm still at IIT. I'm still technically an employee of Chicago Kent College of Law. This was a unique thing, and this, this leads into what Cali is about. Cali started as a project at the University of Minnesota and at Harvard Law School with the idea that there were some faculty there who said, we should explore this idea of using the computer as a teaching tool, an intelligent tutoring system, ITS, a Skinner box, in which we can use the text on the screen to walk students through hypotheticals, how they read, and then we can pepper them with questions. And based on the students' answers of the questions, and I don't, I don't mean typing in or talking to the computer because this was in the 80s, you know, they would choose A or B or they would choose their own adventure. We could then essentially have a flowchart that moves them through this law space and acts an awful lot like a Socratic dialogue, right? 
So you give them a hypothetical, you ask them, what do you think about this? The student chooses, and then you could say, whether they got it right or wrong isn't the point. You could say, well, what if I change the facts on you? Or you could say, what if this situation involved? And so the problem then just becomes how complicated you want to make the flowchart. And can you get a faculty member who understands that flowchart of learning the law into a device or into a software program that will then sort of present a trimmed tree of that flowchart to the student? And they were fascinated by that idea that interactive tutorials could mimic what they do every day in the classroom as a Socratic dialogue. And so that's how Cali got started. In the late 80s, early 90s, I refer to Ron again, Ron Stout. He, he opened an outpost of Cali at Chicago Kent, and that's how I got aware of it and knew about it. I always knew about Cali because they would send us the tutorials that had been written. There were about 100 of them at the time, and I was in charge of making sure those 100 floppy disks got installed on all of our lab computers. There was no network, so I'd have to walk around or have a staff person with me walk around and, and, and insert 100 floppy disks into 40 different computers. So I was like, what, what is that? 4,000 floppy disk switches in order oh to get goodness. that done. Now, later on, Cali distributed their materials as CD-ROMs or as DVD-ROMs, and then I inevitably went onto the Internet. But the goal was always to create a self-paced tutorial that covered a very specific areas of law and have them written by law professors who were very familiar already with the conversational space they were trying to simulate and then let other faculty either assign them or recommend them to their students so that the students would get sort of a second bite at the apple of learning about something. So our most popular initial lessons were in CivPro and in Evidence. That makes sense. Yeah, evidence is particularly tuned to this because of the arcane hearsay rules, right? You know, you could present a hypo and then say, oh, well, what if he said it this way? And what if he said it this way? And there's just not... Oh, you're giving me flashbacks to my evidence class. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and, there's, just, and there's not enough practice for students out there. They crave to be able to practice that in all sorts of situations. By the way, it's probably why people like watching Perry Mason or Matlock or Law and Order and seeing how those evidence rules are played out in a Hollywood setting. Right. So the position opens up and you're familiar with it and you, you take it in addition to your position or your loan to Cali. Well, I'd been at the law school for seven years. I'd done numerous projects. I helped them build a brand new building. I was at a stage in my career when I said, what's next for me? And at the time, I could, I could go on to work at a university and become, you know, uh, be CIO track, chief information officer. I could go work for a corporation, be a project manager and move up into a CIO type situation. But I found, I found that I was liking working in education. There were numerous challenges. You know, there was a lot of opportunity for my contribution to be significant. I also kind of started to realize I liked working in law. I didn't have a desire to go to law school myself. You know, I, I liked being law adjacent, let's say, because I started to realize how key law was to society. And so a better way to say that is, is I started to believe in the idea that justice needed my help. That's fair. Yeah. You know, it needed a technician, an engineer, a systems thinker to maybe bring some efficiencies and some economies of scale that computers were bringing to lots of other areas and to do it in a way that wasn't overselling it either. 
I'm very wary of over-promising technology. I'm not a techno-optimist. I'm somewhat of a pessimist, partly in reaction to people for so many years promising that AI will save our lives or technology can solve all problems. I'm like, not without that human element in there. Trust me on that. So Cali has started from a legal instruction basis. But if I understand it, its mission has expanded to try to deal with the A to J gap and technology, both for consumers of legal services, as well as educators and law students. Am I summarizing it correctly? Yeah, you are. We definitely could have just spent all our efforts on nothing but self-paced tutorials. When I started with Cali in 94, there was about 120 lessons, and we had about 130 law schools of the 170 ABA accredited schools who were members. And also to explain to your listeners, the way Cali gets his money is law schools pay a lump sum membership fee. At the time, it was uh, $2,500 per law school. So do the math, 2,500 times 130, half a million dollars, less than that was our basic budget. Today, 198, let's say 200 members, our annual dues are $8,000. So our basis is about $1.5, $1.6 million to do what we do. Well, we wanted to grow. With $400,000, there was like five or six staff. We wanted to do new projects that meant hiring programmers or paying people to do content. And it wasn't in the budget. And so, you know, I, I chose to lead Cali into other projects. One of them was, and I sort of have to back up the story. After seven years with Cali, the board said, you're doing great. You know, at that point, we had about 500 lessons. We had about 190 members. So we were growing into the space. They said, why don't you take a year off as a sabbatical to think of new things, maybe write a paper or something like that? You know, my board was made up of academicians. So they were thinking in terms of me doing something, you know, think PC and academic. And instead, there was a new project happening in Illinois where some money was coming in from the uh, Barr Foundation and from the National Center for State Courts and from the State Justice Institute and from matching money from IIT. That was a big key to explore the problem of self-represented litigants and the justice system. So it was a combined project of the law school and the Institute of Design at IIT to go watch self-represented litigants bumble and stumble their way through dealing with their own legal problem in five different courts around the country. So I joined the project and you know went to those places and watched people struggle with the legal system. And of course, I'm the systems tech guy. I'm thinking, man, there's ways we can automate some of this stuff if the courts would allow it, or there's ways we can automate this stuff that you know would make people be able to deal with their legal problems themselves if only, you know, there was software in place for that sort of thing. To sort of speed the story up, Cali decided, you know, with some grant money from the Legal Services Corporation to build a document automation tool that would make it easy for self-represented litigants to fill out court forms accurately and efficiently themselves. The most common example or, or analogy to that is like TurboTax. Right. So you you do your research phase and you get the grant. But what did you learn from the research phase that turned into design goals? The research phase uh, published a book. It's a little dense and hard to read because it's written by design nerds. You know, it's almost uses it's a lot uses a lot of design language. But at the base of it was 200 ideas about how to improve anybody's journey and in, in their interaction with the justice system. 
And a chunk of that was an awful lot of people incorrectly fill out or have lots of trouble filling out court forms. Court forms are a sort of a language that the justice system uses to talk with itself. They use it as, a, as an obstacle and an interface to the public where the undifferentiated information is. But through the form, the, the information becomes uh, structured. We don't want to hear your sob story. We don't want to hear the details about your brother-in-law or your drinking problem. We want to know the facts of the case or how much money you make or something like that. That sounds a little cruel, but it's utilitarian. The form reduces your problem to a utilitarian database entry that then the court uses and the system uses as a way to put you and your problem into categories for scheduling, you know, remediation, you know, and so on. So how you fill out a form and whether you fill it out correctly and accurately and timely and whether you're filling out the correct form is a gateway to a whole bunch of problems or things that are going on when anybody's dealing with it, especially if they're dealing with it without a lawyer. That's what the SRL aspect is, a self-representing litigant. So we decided to say, well, let's help people get past that bottleneck, you know, filling out even if it's just we start with simple stuff, domestic violence, temporary restraining orders, um, uncontested divorce, criminal expungements. It turns out there's a whole array, a whole buffet, I would say, of simple forms that can be relatively easily automated, you know, that we could tackle with a problem. You know, we're not, I, I don't want to overpromise. We're not going to do mergers and acquisitions. We're not going to do, you know, federal bankruptcy, although today that is being done with online forms. Our goals were very modest at the start that we could automate these things. And immediately, we learned a couple of really great things. One of them is a form is like a series of empty slots. And if you think of a form on a computer, you think of a big scrolling set of boxes. Well, we decided each one of those things could be one page on the web, a single page. And that actually slowed down the process, which sounds counterintuitive. But overall, it speeds up the process because you got to remember we're dealing with self-represented litigants. English is a second language. Maybe they haven't finished high school because they're poor. They're stressed out because they're not familiar with the justice system. And so you actually force them in the interface we came up with to concentrate on one question at a time, answer it, don't have a lot of distracting things on the screen, go to the next question, go to the next question. Too much text must have been overwhelming for this cohort. Oh, my gosh. So so on the other side, with the authors, because we weren't writing the forms ourselves, we were training legal aid attorneys to do the work. They were getting paid in the grant to do the automation. And the reason was they were SMEs. They were subject matter experts. We wanted their familiarity with what people go through to be imbued in the guided interview that comes out of building an online automated form. And so one of the one of the key things was if there's any sort of disqualifying information, put all of that up front. We found that even with court forms, you could get to the bottom of a three-page form and then it will ask a question like, well, how much money do you make? And you put a number in there and it's like, yeah, you're, you don't qualify or this is the wrong form. You have to use the person who makes more money for I'm using that as a, as a rough example. No, but you've got the opportunity technologically to reorder and reimagine the form. Yes, exactly, exactly. So they rearrange the questions so that the important disqualifying, whatever it is, you know, you're in the wrong place, go someplace else. You need to go off and get this information. You know, we don't want to waste your time answering a bunch of questions that will result in you being frustrated and angry when you get to the end and find out you wasted your time. But that's a little tiny insight, but it was a massive improvement or in, in the process. 
It's so interesting to me. So you've got two user groups, basically. You've got the consumers who are going to be navigating through the program, but then you've got the legal aid attorneys that have to create the content and put it in the program. How did you design a program that met the needs of those two groups? Because I presume the legal aid people, you're designing it to be essentially a no-code or low-code program because they're not trained computer professionals. So you've got two groups of people, neither of whom are experts, presumably, in computer programming. Yes. That's an interesting dynamic you were confronting. Absolutely. Well, the self-represented litigant one was straightforward, even at the time, because we had worked with the Institute of Design. So we had become familiar with this burgeoning, heretofore to me, a hidden profession, the idea of a design expert, someone who would design interfaces. I had read lots of books about computer design, Windows and the Macintosh, Takazini and others, but I hadn't realized that there was a design profession for this. And it's interesting, they had never really thought of themselves as designing processes. That was a relatively new thing, a design process or an interface that was a civic tech, what we would call today a civic tech or a legal tech interface. So they came up with designs. We sat around and brainstormed things. We borrowed liberally from other designs that seemed to work on the web at the time. And then they iterated. They'd bring in people who represented the population of self-represented litigants, gave them tasks to do on paper prototypes and on mock-ups, and uh, went back and forth until they came up with something that could be implemented. And I was there saying, that's going to be really hard to code. (laughs) Can we not do talking avatars? Because this was 2000 and we didn't have a budget for animators and things like that. So there were compromises throughout the process on what would be wonderful and what was possible and what was affordable. So that's how we dealt with the self-represented litigants. Now, interestingly, on the other side, the design goal was we wanted legal aid attorneys to be able to build their own guided interviews without an expensive programmer at their elbow. We couldn't afford that either. The concept of no code did not exist. At least it wasn't called no code. But here's where it gets interesting. Callie had spent 20 years before that point trying to figure out how to train law faculty, how to create interactive tutorials that walk students through a learning process without a programmer at their elbow. And we had written a program called Cali Author. We love to take the word author and attach to things. And we could train a faculty member in a couple of hours how to write a tutorial. Now, in case it isn't obvious, there's a lot of parallels between the subject matter expert of a faculty member walking the SRL of the law student through a complicated legal conversation that results in them understanding something like offer and acceptance or the rule against perpetuities and a subject matter expert legal aid attorney asking questions and walking a self-represented litigant through filling out a court form efficiently and successfully. So the same guy who programmed our initial Cali author system programmed our first versions of A to J author. And it worked really well. <laughs> we were, I was like, this kind of works. That's amazing. It was. It was amazing. It was amazing. There's even another angle to it. it this was 2004. And I would have to ask you to remember the state of the web at that time. And that was the meteoric rise of Netscape Navigator and its decline in face of competition with Microsoft Internet Explorer. It was it was the time of the browser wars. Right. I recall. And as a result, we were trying to write something that would work no matter what people had out there. And there was 
open warfare between the browser manufacturers. And so writing compatible code that would work in both Internet Explorer and Netscape Navigator was terrifically difficult. Like right at the moment, we were trying to do that. And we bailed. We said, too hard. And so we went to Flash. So Adobe Flash was ubiquitous at the time because there were so many games and a lot of videos being done. And so we wrote the whole thing in Flash, which made sure that it looked and worked the same whether you were in Internet Explorer or Netscape Navigator. And so the first version of A to J Author, and for 10 years after, was a Flash app that would present on the screen an avatar, a little a little person. And then you, as the self-represented litigant, would be represented by a person. We didn't use animation, but we were able to create a fairly nice cartoon-like or comic strip-like experience that would walk people through answering the questions that would then result in an XML document coming out that we could feed to a document automation system to produce a PDF form. Oh, that's interesting. And that that interface, I assume you thought through what impact that had. You're, you're dealing with a user base. It's, as you said, it's stressed out or worried. And I presume the avatar or the, the interface helped put at least a human dynamic on it that helped alleviate some of that stress. Yeah, that's exactly it. Our early testing was, I mean, we showed people HTML forms or JavaScript forms, things that you see everywhere today, right? We all buy stuff on Amazon or we fill out forms for attending events or conferences. And people were like non-technical users. And it felt, I, I don't know how to, I don't know what word to grasp here. It felt sterile or it felt cold, I guess. And so, you know, even Microsoft thought that was true. And so they invented Clippy, the little wizard and stuff like that. And if you read books from the uh, social engineering guys, they say if you take even a minor effort to humanize your interface, it results in a a lot of empathy in in the minds of the user. So we said, all right, our original designs were we threw up photographs of typical SRLs, you know, models, of course, and said, you know, pick which one you want to be. The problem was people got caught up in, oh, who should I be today? You know, I want to be the tall black guy or I want to be the short redhead or something. Or, oh, I don't like that guy's shirt. And we're like, okay, too distracting, too much like um, a video game where you like outfit your armor or your sword or something. And so we said, so we cut it way back to a sort of, don't want to use the word generic, but a, a, a generic avatar that wears a business suit, male or female, helping you, a generic person in a slacks and a shirt, you know, male or female, walk the path that leads to the form being filled out or to the courthouse where you would file that form. That's fascinating. And so you've now had millions of users use A to J Yes, that's been used over 7 million times and generated, you know, 5 million documents. Adoption of technology is not always the easiest thing to do, particularly at the success level you've had. You clearly were meeting a need that was apparent to you guys at the time. So there's clearly a need and you, you're doing some design elements to make it more empathetic to users. But were there other techniques you used to sort of speed adoption, either among the legal aid attorneys or the consumers? How did you accomplish that? Oh, well, to answer that, I have to remind you that we were a small nonprofit and our remit was build an authoring tool. You know, it wasn't to solve the entire tool chain problem. And we couldn't unless somebody said, here's a lot of money, John, solve all the problems. So we partnered. At the same time, Legal Services Corporation was funding technology initiative grants, TIGs. 
in which they would give money, and this was money above and beyond the money given to Legal Services Corporation. For your listeners who may not know, LSC is a nonprofit corporation that's funded by appropriations from Congress to fund the legal aid organizations in individual states. There's 130 of these organizations in the 50 states plus, I'm going to forget, the Marianas and the other Guam and a few others. And they get money to hire lawyers to help people who are too poor to get civil representation. This is completely different from the public defender system, which is criminal. So they got an extra $4 million starting in around 2000 to do nothing but give grants to legal aid organizations to fund brand new technology projects. So some of them took the money and put up websites. Some of them tried to do document automation, but it wasn't enough money to do that. As a matter of fact, what was rising to the surface or, uh, or what we were realizing, what the world, what our community was realizing, was that there were some things that an individual legal aid or an individual nonprofit could accomplish. And what was needed was a national place to drop all of these guided interviews. And they formed a group called, and I'm, I don't even remember what it stands for. It was called NPADO, National Public Docu- Automated Documents Repository or something like that. Anyhow, they quickly changed their name to Law Help Interactive, which was part of a nonprofit in New York called Pro Bono Net. So Pro Bono Net was mostly helping law firms manage their pro bono attorneys work. And they took on this extra task with grant money from LSC. And we partnered with them. So people would write A to J guided interviews, but across the country, we would work with legal aids anywhere or courts or individuals, we didn't care as long as you were automating a form for self-represented litigants. And then they would park them at LHI, Law Help Interactive. So there was a single place where you could go to find all these forms. And then because all these legal aides were building brand new websites, they would have what I would call contextual or ancillary information about your legal problem. So the goal was, you know, you would Google and find out, I have a domestic violence problem. They would be like, well, here's your legal ramifications. Here's things you can do. You can get a temporary restraining order. And then they would link back to this national document automation server, run the A to J guided interview. We wrote the software. Some legal aid person did it and get their forms. So the whole thing was a clockwork of cooperation that was connected by links, some of it funded by local legal aid, some of it funded by legal services corporation, some funded by Cali because we had skin in the game. And I'll explain why we did that. And that's how we got the 7 million A to J guided interviews run in the last 10 years. That's fabulous. I mean, the success of the program has just been amazing. I know we don't have a lot of time remaining, but maybe you could take us to the use of the Cali tools in the legal education process, because I've heard you talk about how these tools like A to J author for law students is a way of both helping them become more technologically savvy, as well as thinking more of a process way about the delivery of legal services. Can you talk just a little bit about that? And that's the high goal, right? As a matter of fact, when I first sort of got Cali caught up in the A to J project, I had skeptical board members. They're like, what's this got to do with legal education, John? You know, this, isn't this outside our mission? And I said, no, it's not. One, law schools, and this was my moral high ground, law schools have got to be at the table and got to be a player in dealing with the access to justice gap, which is massive. It's a massive problem. We, law schools, legal education, produce the lawyers who are not serving the need of so many people who are being forced to represent themselves. This is our way to do something about that. And since this is a 
law, justice, technology problem, Cali is within our Venn diagram of, of what we could do and our expertise levels. One would argue you're uniquely qualified to do it. Yeah, exactly. Secondarily, I said, we could bring this tool into the schools. You know, since we've got a website up where legal aid attorneys are being trained in how to automate the law, why don't we offer this to law schools and say, you should have your students do projects where they have to learn how to automate a court form. And if you automate a court form, it turns out you have to know a lot about the law that's behind it. So the first step should be for them to do a research project that's like, all right, what is everything about a temporary restraining order in Oklahoma? Because law is very jurisdictional. Or what's everything about expungement? Or if they want to go horizontal, how would you automate expungement across all 50 states? What are the comparative differences between that process and all of them? It wasn't up to me to figure out what class that might be taught in, but I could imagine it could be taught in a seminar or in a technology competency course. Or if the court form or the process was specific to something like uh, like torts or constitutional law, you can make it a small project inside one of those uh, other uh, podium classes. And so we've done that. I do presentations to classes, tell them about A to J author and about the software. Sometimes schools will have a class where they'll have the students do a semester-long project. Sometimes law schools will find mentorships or partnerships with courts or with legal aid programs in which they're actually doing sort of a first draft of an automated form. And the reason why it's a first draft is law students are the worst people in the world to automate a form because they have no experience. They can't, you know, they, they haven't lived it. But the value of them doing the work and maybe them being at the elbow of somebody who is a subject matter expert, you know, can result in a little bit of synergy there. They can they can help the subject matter expert understand the technology Students are younger and smarter with tech, and they can you know, do, the, do the grunt work or the research work and something like that. But way more interesting to me is they'll graduate and they'll be aware of this space and this problem space. And maybe they'll even be inspired to go work in legal aid or to do more pro bono work of this type if they end up going to work for a law firm. Well, that's that's amazing. John, we're, we're out of time, but I could listen to the work of Callie and your work for a lot longer than we've been allocated. <laughs> Thank you. Because what you're doing is really amazing stuff. What's amazing to me is the length of time you've been doing it and how far ahead of the curve you were when you started AJ Author and Cali. So, you know, thank you to you and to the work of Cali for the work you're doing in legal education and helping close the A to J gap. It's, it's been amazing. And thank you for your time uh, today. Thank you for your kind words and couldn't have done it without the mentorship of people like Ron Stout and the partnerships with Pro Bono Net and Law Help Interactive and, of course, funding from Legal Services Corporation. So you, you, nobody does anything alone. We all are smarter and better collectively and together. Absolutely. John, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.